Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes. Here's something for you to ponder on your next morning commute. What do you think it's like to go to work every day, meet up with a 220-pound co-worker who has the patience of a saint and is forever strategizing how to outwit you? Well, some of you may think you already have that. But this time on Talking Apes, we're joined by a woman who does that every single day. Colleen Reed is an orangutan care specialist at the Oregon Zoo. Colleen's passion to work with and for orangutans has led her on a career journey that spans the Center for Great Apes in Florida to the zoo in Oregon, and more recently, to Central Kalimantan in Borneo, the tropical island home of wild orangutans. She's joining us to talk about orangutan cleverness and what it's like hanging out with one of the most patient great apes on the planet, orangutans. That's this time on Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Hi, Colleen, and welcome to Talking Apes. It's really great to have you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You know what I'd like to start with today is something that's going to sound probably pretty weird to you, being that you are an orangutan specialist. Um, But can you describe an orangutan for us? And here's the reason I'm I'm asking that is because um, over the last few years, we've done um, a survey and things, and we asked people to name the five great apes and where they live. And you wouldn't believe how many people left orangutans off the list. But also when it came to describing where they live, no one could say. And then then we also have heard things like, oh, orangutans, that's the one where the lady got killed in Africa doing her research, right? Let's just pretend for a moment that nobody knows what one is. Describe an orangutan to me. Yeah. So first I would say you look up instead of down towards the ground. So um, so in Africa, we have the bonobos, gorillas, and chimpanzees, and they are mainly ground dwelling, but obviously go up into the trees and build nests and whatnot. But orangutans spend over 90% of their time up in the trees. They also are this really beautiful red or burgundy color, depending on if they're from Borneo or Sumatra. And actually that blends in very well into the forest. So the first thing would be to look up, but even then, good luck <laughs> finding them up there. Um, they're, they're one, they're very quiet in comparison to especially the chimpanzees and bonobos, unless you hear, say, a kiss squeak, which is a warning shot, a warning call, or a long call, which the males will do. So the females will do it as well, but mostly the males. And so they're almost like this silent ape in the background that you hear but may never even see. Um, But if I were to describe particularly a male orangutan who is of age, they would have really big what we call cheek pads or flanges that fill out around their face and help to um, reverberate that long call that I was talking about as well as their throat sack. Um, And they also just have this really gorgeous, cannot be replicated by any 
hairstylist, <laughs> these beautiful red dreadlocks um, that just flow as they sway through the trees. So as large as they are, um, they actually move very gracefully and quietly through the treetops, which is just pretty phenomenal. Um, and they're just very different looking than the other um, great apes that are in Africa that most of the people tend to think of. And yeah, so or orangutans are native right now to the islands of Sumatra and Borneo, which is part of Indonesia in Southeast Asia. And Borneo is actually the third largest island in the world. So it's about the size of Texas, um, which sounds really big, but the amount of orangutans that still live within Borneo is less than the amount that would you would hold within Yankee Stadium, the baseball stadium. Wow. Even though their their range is quite large, their habitat is actually shrinking pretty significantly. And also on top of that, they um now I'm going off for you, but <laughs> they also don't live in large social groups the way the other great apes do. And so it's actually even more important for them to have larger home ranges, specifically the males, because you it it's it's unlike, you know, with chimpanzees, you may have multiple males in one group. Orangutans, that is very, very unusual to have two adult male orangutans near each other at a time. And so they, you know, technically need kind of more range. So well, and, and we'll we'll touch on that in a little bit because that gets into some of the work that you have uh, done in Borneo with rescued orangutans and why they're rescued and and why even with some place the size of the state of Texas, they don't have as much as much range to roam around as, as they want. So going back to the long call and the kiss, can you make either one of those calls? <laughs> I am not going to try. I can do really good chimpanzee vocalizations, but the orangutans are much harder for me to do. But I highly recommend, um, there are plenty of videos on the internet of, especially if you look up specifically Kiss Week and Long Call, those are the two main ones we tend to hear. And they're phenomenal. And they can be heard miles into the forest. So especially when the males do it, like I said, they're reverberating it out to warn off other males in the area and also to attract females. So, I mean, this call can go pretty deep into the forest, which is really dense. Well, maybe what I can do is when we, uh, when I do the post-production on this podcast that I can slice it right here and I'll sneak in a, a, a squeak or a, a kiss. And I'll, I'll sneak in a long call. they are a long calls are pretty amazing yeah. and especially when yeah. you hear them in the forest i've been just lucky enough to hear one once that was oh. a really beautiful <laughs> long call up in uh you you get to work with orangutans like you said oh. i mean they're hard to see in the wild but you um, get to work with them in captivity uh, both in in oregon uh, in portland oregon where where you're a uh, uh, 
care specialist there at the Oregon Zoo. And you get to, you've gotten a chance to work with them in Borneo. And in both, both cases, those were captive situations. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to work with them that close. I mean, versus a researcher who's just, you know, you're hoping to get a glimpse of them in the forest somewhere. Sure. So I actually started working with orangutans um, fairly by accident, I suppose. So I worked with Patty Reagan at the Center for Great Apes. And my first love was chimpanzees. And then I was exposed to the orangutans and they stole my heart as well. And so I started out there working with them. um, And they come from a range of backgrounds. So we had some that were from behavioral lab. We had some that were ex-pets or ex-entertainment. And so you get a range of behavior, of personality, of um, issues that are no fault of their own from being pulled at a very young age. Um, and so that's where I was first exposed to orangutans and and how to really earn their trust. So I think out of all of the great apes that I've been familiar with, that orangutans really test you and, and you have to kind of earn their trust. And that's not to say you can't do that quickly but they are more suspicious, I would say. And so you have to be very patient. And so I worked with them at the Center for Great Apes, and now I'm working with them here at the Oregon Zoo. We actually just recently lost our um, our elder orangutan, Inji. She was 61 years old. To everybody's knowledge, she was actually the oldest living orangutan um, in human care um, and possibly in the wild, quite likely in the wild. You know, fortunately, she lived a very good, long, (laughs) good welfare life. Um, But when it was her time, it was her time. But she was a tough one. She did not let you in easily. And so actually, you know, there's a few animals that I think gain your trust that once you're in kind of that circle of trust, there's an honor about that that you can't really pass on to somebody else. They have to also earn that. I think she, you know, taught all of the people that she's ever worked with one patience. She also was really good at training us. (laughs) So what I mean by that is if she wanted something, she was really good at letting us know what she wanted, what she didn't want, that sort of thing. Well, I was going to ask you, you said test, they test you. I mean, how does an orangutan go about testing you? Is it a math exam or is it? (laughs) So oftentimes, let's say we're in a training session where we're working on behaviors with them, you know, for their own care. So, you know, one thing we train orangutans on, which is a really basic one, is for them to present each of their shoulders to, um, say, a mesh panel. And this can be used for a number of different things. But we oftentimes use it for um, injection if they have to have a physical exam and go under anesthesia. The least stressful way to do that is to let them know what's happening. And so we actually train them with mock um, dull needles to present those shoulders and do that. So sometimes, you know, and they know the difference between their right and their left shoulder. And we have different hand cues and that sort of thing. So, you know, let's say you ask her for her right shoulder and then you want to ask her for her left shoulder and she doesn't feel like turning. You know, so, and, and some people, some new trainers, especially will go, okay, well, she gave me a shoulder, you know, and so she starts to kind of work you, you know, and also just being very clear as I don't want to do that. I'd like to do this and being able to give them that choice as best we can, um, is always really interesting, whether it be food or enrichment or where they want to go or who they want to spend time with. 
Um, we really try and give as much choice as we can. It's always really interesting to see what they pick. Right now we have um, Kitra and Bob. Um, and so Bob, just in the last about year, got those cheek pads I was talking about earlier. He's kind of a night and day to say NG and our female Kitra because um, he was actually trained very young to train. Um, with their keepers and one it's extremely enriching for them because it's mentally challenging the same way it would be for a child going to school he is all about training he loves to train he is engaged all the time in training and he just he's one of those animals that also I think in combination with his amazing personality but also and that he was trained early on it makes it a lot easier to train harder behaviors because he's already kind of done the basics and we can add on that and build on that. So I think that's one of the things that amazes me about orangutans and, and when I've seen them in captivity and in the wild is that there's this impression because they are so quiet and they kind of sit and just watch and they're very slow with their eyes sometimes. I mean, they you don't even notice them watching you, but I could see people walking away from an experience with orangutans and if it wasn't long and long enough experience i could see them coming away from thinking this isn't a really bright animal you know yes. it's just they're kind of dull they're set because they're not jumping around like a chimpanzee Correct. or yeah or even as mobile as, as gorillas can be yeah. you know but but i would actually yeah. yeah it is really funny we have heard that before and we on on our end of it as primate keepers and people who care for them actually think the opposite so we consider the orangutans to almost be the engineers of the ape world because their thinking is what they're doing they're contemplating and planning and thinking all the time which is another reason why it's so important to engage with them and to keep them engaged and to keep them enriched and mentally stimulated but they're watching you know they they really are and there's i've heard this story so many times and i actually really think that it's true so Let's say a, a keeper goes into a habitat and leaves a screwdriver on accident and a chimpanzee comes by and displays with it and throws it around and makes a bunch of noise. A gorilla comes in and may be afraid of it because it's something new and an orangutan comes in and swipes it with his foot and you didn't even see it happen and then he breaks out. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there's a thought there. They're, they're more, um, what's the word? They're just, they, they just think things through. You know, they're and and part of that is probably because they live in smaller social groups, they have the time to do that. So in a larger chimpanzee group, say, they're on high alert because they have a lot of troop to protect and to feed and to move and keep track of and all these things, where orangutans tends to be more semi solitary, particularly the males. And so yeah, they're the they're the thinkers. They just I mean they do, they just sort of sit and contemplate so much of the time and it's just like it's really even when they're even I've noticed in the wild when they're eating, they they're really slow about and deliberate about eating. They're they're sure. like they're never in a rush. Yeah. it seems. No, they're never in a rush. <laughs> That's very true. And 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 to be honest with you, we have found from our end with visitors that if people are willing to spend the time to sit with them for a little while, they will likely engage with you. Um, and so, you know, NG would love to sit in the window with people and look in their bags or watch babies or, you know, see what you had, what was, you know, they were really into hats. And if you're not one of those people who kind of quickly move on to the next thing and really appreciate it, there's definitely something to be gained there. And I highly recommend if you're ever at the zoo 
or any other zoo that has orangutans to just sit a little bit longer and and watch you know watch so them. So taking that experience, them testing you, you doing the training, how does that translate to the work you've done in, in Borneo? And because I think that's really fascinating that you've had that opportunity. So maybe describe that a little bit uh, for folks who are listening about what that was, why you went to Borneo, and and then and then translate. Sure. Yeah. what you what you do at Oregon Zoo and and how you interact with orangutans there and how that is the same or different than uh, what's happened in Borneo well I would say for a lot of um, keepers and caregivers that the line between what we do at work and our outside lives and what we care about are very fluid <laughs> and so um, it was a pretty natural progression so I like I said I worked with Patty Reagan and then I met um, Richard Zimmerman from um, Orangutan Outreach and then met Jamartin Seahite who is the um, director of Bornean Orangutan Survival Foundation and you know, it's a small world, so everybody kind of knows each other. But uh, Jim Martin happened to be in Seattle and was going to be doing some talks around the United States for some fundraising and whatnot. And um, we connected him with our zoo, and he came to do a talk. And obviously, while he was there, it had been several years since he had been there. And we, um, you know, were showing him around our area and showing him our orangutans and our training and our enrichment program with them and how we feed and just all these little things that no matter if you've been an orangutan keeper or primate keeper for many, many years, it's always really beneficial to kind of bounce ideas off each other and see new things. Um, and so he came and he saw us doing some work with our orangutans um, including voluntary blood draw with Bob that I was talking about earlier. Um, and so we have a training sleeve that he's trained to put his arm into and our vet staff can actually get a voluntary blood sample. And all of that is done strictly through positive reinforcement training. So that's really fancy for you get something good in return and you make it worth it for them and that they are, they are participating in it to their own accord. They're not being forced to do anything. And so um, we, we do that with Bob. We do cardiac ultrasound. We do that injection that I was talking about for anesthesia. There's a whole slew of things that we do. And a lot of that is for their health if we need it. So another example is that he's trained on a nebulizer, a handheld nebulizer. And that isn't needed right now because he doesn't need it. But let's say he gets air sacculitis and we do need to nebulize him um, with a medication. He's already trained to do that. So a lot of the things that we train our animals to do are not because we need them to do the actual thing now. But in the event that we will need to, they already know how to do it. And so we can care for them when they're not feeling well or when they're getting towards the end of their life or that sort of thing. So Jamartin saw a lot of this. Um, and was really excited and said <laughs> very bluntly, can you do this over there? And I was like, uh, I guess so. <laughs> over, the, over there being Borneo. Being Borneo, yeah, with his two projects in Samboja Lasari and Nyarmenteng. And um, it was really funny, too, because he, he did say, he's like, I mean, yeah, it's really easy to do it on three because we had three orangutans at the time. We have hundreds of orangutans with a variety of different needs. And so um, he asked our zoo um, if we would go over there and help him with their training program and helping him with some of these behaviors. 
And I mean, this was in very beginning stages and I had no idea I had not been before. So I didn't know what it looked like or what the variety of animals they, I, I knew it kind of from a, a secondary standpoint. And so when we got there, we found very quickly that the need was very varied and, um, they had everything from young baby orangutans who had just come in to or young orangutans who were going into forest school and needed help with that to um, orangutans who suffered from tuberculosis who needed that nebulization and medication um, to wound treatment to shifting. I mean, there's the plethora of things is what a keeper like myself would see along an entire career and instead was seeing it all together in one time. And so what we went there to do quickly turned into a much larger project um, and understanding. And so our first trip there, we worked really heavily at Samboja Lestari with their vet staff and um, their technici or their technicians there. Um, and we worked with their sun bears as well, but mostly their orangutans. And, you know, their number one goal is to be able to release these guys back to the wild if possible. But unfortunately, that isn't possible for a number of them. And whether that's because they have tuberculosis and they can't be released because they could infect the wild population, or let's say they were in pet or the circus trade, you, you can't release those guys back to the wild, they will not survive. And on top of that, their habitat is shrinking. So, what they're really looking for too is to build more islands and larger enclosures and that sort of thing. But in the interim, they still need care. They still need medical attention. Um, and so we worked with vet staff on doing that injection training with the shoulders. So if they needed to have an exam, we worked on nebulizing. We worked on basic body presentation. Um, so presenting hands and feet through the mesh. Let's say you have a wound on the hand and you can treat the hand. Um, opening the mouth so you can inspect their teeth and their throat sac and, um, you know, being able to spray a wound or a, a fungal infection with an iodine spray. I mean, just the, the plethora of things that we can do is all over the map. And that's a really good thing to, to be able to share um, because it's... Did their keepers, did their, sorry, did their staff... Were I mean, did most of them understand some of these methods and stuff, or was this all new to them? Yeah, well? so some of them already had a basic understanding, which was fantastic and really helped us to kind of sell why this was important. Um, but it is a little different over there with how we work here usually as keepers. So their veterinary staff was actually really heavily involved, where here our veterinary staff – um, relies on us heavily to train those behaviors and then come in later on um, and kind of backfill. So we actually worked with the vet staff sometimes more than the actual technicians, depending on what the behavior was. So um, that was that was pretty cool too because you could tell from their end, they're going, I have to treat this animal and I'm really trying to get there and it's really challenging. And so being able to take some of that weight off of them and showing that it can be, one, done and sometimes just a few sessions um, gave them kind of a confidence as well, and they got really excited. And Agnes, one of the one of the veterinary staff there, um, is amazing. And like the first time she did, and this was like again. So when we practice, we use not a real needle; it's doled down, so it still looks the same. It, it still pokes just a little bit, and you know, but it doesn't pierce the skin. 
And when she did that for the first time on camera, she was just like shaking her hands and so excited. And so that alone like excites us because that's exactly what we want to do because you know, we go there to, to help, but it, it really is to pass it on to them because we're not there all the time and we want to teach them how to do it and gain knowledge from them. So there was a lot of things that we got to experience from them where we're going, oh my gosh, that like, you guys are phenomenal what you're doing in this setup. Like, you know, sometimes I think, um, you know, keeper staff within, within zoos and sanctuaries here have this, we have to have the whole thing in this box and like get it all prepared. And the guys over there are like, we're getting it done right now. And like, whatever the circumstances are around it, they're going to get it done. And to, to watch that, you're like just in awe. I mean, I've been, uh, been filming in some of those sanctuaries and there are an incredible number of animals. So that, that alone must've been almost overwhelming for you to, to see. I mean, coming from a place where you want, you have one, two, three, animals to to just literally cages of and i know in the case of boss um that they have gosh i think it's over 300 animals now in, mm -hmm. in one of the locations yeah, yeah yeah and and they were never anticipating to have that many but that's where the need is and i think that oftentimes happens with sanctuaries all over the world with all kinds of different species is you know, you, you start to try and help fill that need and, and the need is much greater than you ever realize, unfortunately. Um, they, but they do an amazing job at releasing orangutans back into the wild as well. And so it's been, it really has been phenomenal to work with them and, and to play a very, very small role in doing that, you know? So, yeah. Maybe you could explain quickly, uh, for those who aren't familiar, like maybe they weren't familiar with what an orangutan looked like at the same time, maybe they aren't familiar with why there are all these orangutans there and, and what that what that sort of process is of rescue, hopefully release, um, and how that plays out. Because if, if I remember right, you said, I thought I heard you say once in a, a lecture or something that you uh, got to go on a release. Mm -hmm. Was that, that must've been exciting. So maybe, yeah. maybe you could just quickly walk us through that whole process. Like why, why are there so many orangutans there and, and what's the process? Yeah. So a lot of, particularly the, the babies and the young ones who come in, come in because the mother is, is gone, has been killed. So you do not gain a baby orangutan without the mother dying. It just, it doesn't happen. They don't wander off. They're on mom for several years and then they stay with mom till they're seven or eight years old anyhow. So every baby that they were getting in did not have a mother. And actually in just a couple of weeks, Orangutan Outreach is doing a campaign, Missing Orangutan Mothers, which talks about that because a lot of people, they see a really cute baby orangutan without really understanding where they came from. And then on top of that, in a lot of areas, they're still considered pests. So let's say you have a palm oil plantation or some other kind of plantation or farm, and you have an adult orangutan come in, they're oftentimes shot. So that was the other thing, too. We saw a lot of wounding and a lot of blindness from animals being shot. So it's really heartbreaking because a lot of those guys obviously cannot be released when they can't, sometimes they'll get an animal in that just happens to be in the wrong place <laughs> at the wrong time, and they're fortunate enough where the animal's healthy enough, nothing happened, they weren't shot, where they can be re-released in another area really quickly. Um, but that's kind of a more rare case. 
what ends up happening is these centers get flooded <laughs> with these animals and it is a very long process. You can't just bring in an animal, have them go through a physical exam and then send them on their way out to the wild. Because again, these young ones would have been with their mothers till they were seven or eight years old. And so they require that teaching and that care from human staff. Once those babies get to what they call forest school, the caretakers there will actually take them out into the forest and teach them the basics of making a nest for themselves at night, the right foods, the predators to be afraid of, snakes and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that takes a really long time. Orangutan burrs can't keep up with the amount of deaths that are happening. It's really challenging. And then every once in a while, you get, you know, luckily out of the ones that they have, I believe they have a couple hundred that, that are, you know, releasable. They will, um, if they've gone through four school, or sometimes they can skip stages too. Sometimes they get to their advance and they get to skip <laughs> certain stages of school. So some are um, able to go on what they call pre-release islands, which is kind of a... a controlled tester for if they were actually to be released in the wild. And this is really a fantastic idea because it still allows them to build those nests at night, to find their own food, to habitate um, with other correct orangutans, and then also be checked in on because the islands are, um, they take boats around the islands and are able to um, check on the orangutans because they have these feeding platforms at the edge of the water where they'll supplement, um, they'll put supplemental food out on those platforms, a bunch of fruit and that sort of thing, which attracts the orangutans. So they don't have to be right with the orangutans, but they can observe, get a head count, see who's healthy, if there's any wounding, if anything's happened, um, and just really check on how they're doing. And then once they graduate that, then they can be released into the wild. But some of these releases are, you know, nine to 20 hours away of driving an orangutan in um, in a crate in the back of a truck. And they actually, when more recently, fortunately, they've been able to do it actually by helicopter in some circumstances, which is really phenomenal. I was incredibly fortunate and honored to go on a release that I had nothing to do with. <laughs> I cannot take any credit for that. I just happened to be there as a witness and just it flooded my heart. I've never experienced anything like that. And um, I was really, really honored. They allowed me to actually open one of the crates. And the little girl walked out and turned around and looked at me and then went up a tree. And I just bawled. I had a hard time <laughs> seeing where I was going because I couldn't see. But um, that whole journey, we were actually escorted most of the way by, um, by local police so that we could move through the cities much faster. Um, because every couple hours we had to pull over and our vet staff would actually check in on the orangutans, make sure they were drinking and that they were doing okay. Um, and to just try and get the process going as quickly as possible, because it's not like there's major highways there that you can move through really quickly. Some of these roads were like pretty treacherous. And so to get through them faster, we had essentially an escort, um, and so, yeah, there, there's a really heavy push, especially in the last, uh, the last just few years, to really get these animals back out into the wild. Um, and so, you know, there's that push and then also the push to, to keep land because you, you, don't, you can't, unlike, you know, releasing a troop of chimpanzees or a troop of gorillas, um, 
these guys tend to go more one-on-one. And so it, it, it takes a lot of effort to get these guys released back into the wild. I mean, it can take years, honestly. And it, um, it's no small feat and it, and it, you know, I mean, the amount of work that goes into it is just, um, phenomenal and the patience and the dedication of the staff there to get it done is just amazing to just be on the sidelines and watch, honestly. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I, I did want to mention that the islands that you're talking about, um, just so, so folks will have some kind of mental image of this. They're not islands out in the ocean or anything. They're actually islands in rivers. So they're, they're in Borneo, they're surrounded by forest and then they just happen to be forested islands in the middle of the river. So it gives, and orangutans, um, are, uh, not fond of swimming. So, um. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if people are familiar with say lagoons or rivers, oftentimes there's smaller islands within that. And that's essentially what these are as well. Um, so yeah, they're good. They're good tester sites. Yeah. How would, how, what was it like working in a, in a different culture, uh, different, I mean, obviously you, you see people every day in your normal line of work, but they're all basically Americans Yeah, you know, coming at it with, you know, a, a single perspective. And here now you're sitting in the middle of a, a country that, um, completely different culture, a uh, couple of different cultures actually in some of those areas and, and people who approach, wildlife differently who think about wildlife and conservation and all those things differently. What, what was that like for you? Um, it definitely, I, I mean, I, I love to travel and I love to, I've kind of always been this way. I love all different kinds of people and learning from them and about them and just talking with them. Um, and so I think it just added to that already there appreciation that I'd had from afar but experiencing on the ground is, is much different. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's everything it's, it's in how they interact with each other and how they dress and how they talk and what they eat and the music they listen to and how they talk about the animals that they care for and the issues that they're seeing on the ground. I was kind of just a little sponge (laughs) taking all of that in. And even though we, we went there to help them as well, um, you know, I, I think it, it helped me gain lifelong friends, you know, and, and an understanding of, of how challenging it really is there. Because even working for orangutan outreach, um, you know, we support boss there through orangutan outreach and through the adoption program and all that. But it, it, it always feels like one step back, like, like through a computer screen or, or something like that. And there's just something very different, um, with being engulfed with those people and sitting with them and having dinner with them and having lunch with them and just talking about a plethora of things, not even just orangutans, but you know, all kinds of stuff. And so, um, I think that there's just a general appreciation that, that helps you be even more open-minded. Right. So I think sometimes, um, particularly the Western culture, has this idea that we know best and we're going to go in and we're going to do this. And I think with, with this program, um, that we help facilitate that there was a need there that was presented to us and we wanted to help fill that. But at the same time, understanding that this is a much different circumstance than our little window of our three orangutans that we have here. And so, 
yeah, I think that was a huge challenge. And what did you bring out of that in both working with the people, but and also working with the orangutans there? Was, is have there been some things that you brought back with you that have influenced? I mean, we're, we're talking about what happened to you and the influences on you there, but are, have there been some things that came back with you that e- even now? Because we're we're a couple of years removed from that because of of um, the the pandemic and other things. Um, I I think that coming back it gave me a greater appreciation for what we have here, you know, and and also there's things that they're exposed to there. The animals are exposed to there that because we're in such a kind of a bubble, both with we're on top of them with their care, they have vet staff right there, they have all the food that they need, all the medications they need, all the enrichment, like all these things we have that I think from my end, I'm always trying to push that boundary and make it even better. And seeing what they were able to do with certain things that were not as expansive or expensive or anything like that that we have you know, one made me appreciate what we do have here even more, but also continued to help me in in being creative, say with enrichment or or how we interact with them. Um, and so, yeah, I think it. I, I I think it's less too of of maybe not not necessarily what we gained, but in observing such similarities between. Um, the relationships between the people and the animals, um, both here and there. So, Speaking of the pandemic, there's uh, been kind of shift gears back uh, to here, to the U.S. And there's been in, uh, we're now about, you know, a bit more than a year out from the beginning of all of it. And there has been more and more concern, it seems like, in zoos and in captive situations about, you know, animals contracting um, covid um, I think probably most of the public heard about it most when San Diego's gorillas got, um, it, they were diagnosed with it. So ha- have things changed in terms of protocols and in terms of the way that you act and interact with um, the primates here? Yeah, so really right from the beginning when we found out about it here, just because we already know that great apes and other primates for that matter can catch just about everything we can we were extremely cautious right from the beginning. Um, even though the first case that showed up in an exotic animal was with a tiger, um, uh, there's an overseeing ape body that basically immediately put out a veterinary statement saying that you should be in N95 masks um, if you're within you know, six feet of an ape. And our facility, um, since the beginning of this has worn N95s whenever we're in a primate area, um, particularly around the apes. And we also stepped back our training program for a little while because we were trying to keep that six foot distance, which when you're training primates, you're usually not six feet away. Um, and it was extra challenging because right in the middle of this, we were supposed to be moving our four current chimpanzees to their newly built home right across the way. And two of them we were doing physical exams on. um, And so they were being trained for that injection, like I said, with our vet staff. And two were being trained to enter a crate voluntarily and close in and then move the 20 yards up the street. And so it was was nearly impossible to do that and do that at the same time. And so 
Um, we were working with them through through that during that time, but we I'm we're still wearing a 95 mask, and we don't know when that will end yet. And also because we have four geriatric chimpanzees, and we had Inji at the time as well, um, so five geriatric great apes, um, we were very cautious. <laughs> Um, because just like, you know, you being concerned about an, a family member in a nursing home, you know, we worry about them. They are older. So since the very beginning, we've been in N95, we've still been in N95s. <laughs> so, um, that has not changed and I, I don't see it changing in the near future until we're, we're more certain on certain things. Um, luckily here in Oregon, a lot of us are getting vaccinated. I get my second vaccine here pretty soon. And so that's exciting for all of us. But um, for us, it's just not worth taking that risk and, and putting them at un undue risk unnecessarily and unknowingly. So, um, yeah, we've been in N95 masks since the very beginning. Um, but, you know, those are that's another issue with across the world. Those are in short supply. And so we're trying to shift what we're doing with, um, obviously we haven't been able to go over and actually train, but the need has changed there as well. So PPE, the primate, or sorry, the, the protection that you would use basically. So the masks, the gloves, the suits, that sort of thing are in high demand and hard to get over there and yet necessary food prices have shot up. And so we're trying to shift the financial backing that we would have used to travel over there and help train. And we're hoping to be able to get that, um, at least some of that over to them to help fill that need. Because right now that is the current need and no, like we're not training anywhere over there in the near future. It's just not possible. So. Well, that, no, that's fantastic because there is a huge need and I, I don't, you know, I don't, you mentioned the, the older apes. I don't think people understand, and this is a whole subject we could do as a podcast sometime, but I, I don't think people understand geriatric apes. Um, you know, it, it, with with not only the, uh, the apes that are captive in the United States, but also in places um, like Boss is running, there are these apes that can't go back in the wild and they get older and they need care and they start having just a, a lot of the same issues that, that, uh, humans face. Um, it's, it's really pretty fascinating to look at. I mean, I know there's a lot of studies going on with geriatric apes, but you know, dementia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's some really interesting thing, interesting research that's going on around that. So yeah, uh, we'll, yeah dementia, we'll menopause, um, all sorts of things for sure that, that are, that are being looked at right now. And, um, yeah, so it, that's definitely where our experience has been here is to make sure that we're being extra cautious with those guys as well. Um, and again, particularly for the orangutans, having them ready to go if something does happen. So again, even with Ingie, she was trained on many, many things that if one of our vet staff said, Hey, can you nebulize her? She'll need this. She was already ready to go. And so you you essentially train all of these things in practice, hoping you kind of never have to use them, right? Like, so, you know, I mean, they can be trained on anything from getting their temperature taken to, you know, with, with Kitra, our female orangutan now, um, 
she has the option to get pregnant. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're checking all of her parts and working with her on doing supplemental, um, you know, breast pumps and that sort of thing. Like just the whole gamut of things that you hope you will never have to use, but if, if you do have to use them, they're already trained for it and they're already comfortable with it. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the big thing is them being comfortable with it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that doesn't matter if it's a young orangutan or, or a geriatric orangutan. A lot of the things we train are the same across the board in case it's ever needed. You, uh, I want to jump across to conservation for just a, a, a second here in the, in the time we have left. And that is, you, you've now seen that situation in the wild with all of these rescued animals. And I know that you were, you've always you've been a part of orangutan outreach for a number of years and the conservation effort and things. So where do, where do people, where does, where does somebody walking into the Oregon zoo and seeing an orangutan and getting all excited? I mean, where does that connection for them? Where do you think that plays out? How do they get involved? How do they make a difference in those orangutans lives? I mean, you're in a really unique situation. You got to go there, you get to train, you have that experience and knowledge, but what, what, you know, just somebody who walks in the front gate and, you know, pays their fee to come in and wanders down and then says, oh, my God, I love this animal. It's amazing. And they do take the time you were talking about earlier to sit and then really just fall in love with it. What what can they do? How can they be involved? So, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to do keeper chats, which is usually one of the best ways to find out more about what you can do and also just ask those random questions um, of keeper staff. So hopefully we'll be able to do those soon. But we just, with having the new primate forest habitat um, brought online, um, there's a lot of new interpretive signage that talks about that. So there's a really great sign that I love that talks about um, the stages of habitat loss, particularly in Borneo. And it, and it talks about, um, the logging and mining, and then the slashing and burning, which is where they slash the remaining forest and burn it off, which releases the the carbon that's stored in the peat swamp. Um, and then planting of palm oil, and then the losing of the orangutan. It's a cycle. It's a really good interpretive. I love it. Um, but there's a couple things that people can do right now, no matter who they are, no matter where they shop. Um, and one of them is buying sustainable palm oil. And it is not a perfect system. In the last 10 years, it's gotten much better and has a very long way to go. Um, our zoo is heavily a part of the RSPO right now and in influencing them and as a stakeholder in that, which is really important to have more voices like that at the table. Um, and so there's a palm oil app through the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, which is phenomenal. And it's a barcode scanner. So um, you can download it on any of your phones and let's say you have a jar of peanut butter and you want to know, does this have, does this have palm oil in it? Is it sustainable palm oil? Because palm oil can be labeled under almost 40 different names that make no sense <laughs> to, to the average person and you would never catch it. And so this app just goes right through that for you. And so you can scan it and it will immediately tell you the company in which it's from if they are RSPO certified, and then in the last couple of years, what they've done instead of saying yes or no, they are or aren't. It's also on a red, red, yellow, green scale. So green means 
they're doing all, there's a point system in which they can be part of the RSPO and that it's evaluated. And so green basically means like, yes, this is like orangutan friendly or it should be. Yellow is in there in the process and red, stay away from it. it they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's very similar to the um, Monterey Bay Aquarium sea, Seafood Watch app. Um, it's very similar to that. And so it just basically helps the consumer make a better choice because it really comes down to money in a lot of these circumstances. And so as a consumer, you're able to kind of shift where that money goes and you're voting every time you do it. <laughs> you're literally taking a vote every time you buy something that has sustainable palm oil in it. And so that's one thing. And then obviously donating to organizations like orangutan outreach or, or virtually adopting an orangutan is another great way to stay involved because they really do need um, the financial backing to be able to care for these animals, to be able to release them back into the wild, um, to be able to purchase the land to release them back into the wild. I mean, it's, there's, there's so many things that, um, you know, your money goes towards on the ground that actually make a real difference. They're not going to say, you know, large admin organizations. You know, I think that some of the larger NGOs um, and nonprofits are pretty top heavy in their admin and what gets trickled down to the animals is sometimes slimmer than we would like. And um, definitely with orangutan outreach, that is not the case. And so, it's it's pretty amazing to see your money go kind of like straight to something on the ground where there's an actual need. Um, and so I would say so, through through buying sustainable palm oil and through adoptions and donating is, are two of the biggest things you can do. So if people want to find orangutan outreach, is it orangutanoutreach.org? It's redapes.org. Redapes.org. Okay, so everybody got that? Redapes.org. Um before we finish up today, I want to ask you if you have one one favorite orangutan story that just stands out above all others because you've had so many experiences with with orangutans in this incredibly personal way, being you know face to face, eyeball to eyeball, practically with mm -hmm. them. So, it, do you have is there one story that you can leave us with that just is like amazing, just always with you? I would say, and this goes way back to when I was a young baby bear <laughs> working with Patty Reagan at the center. But um, Mari is a female Sumatran orangutan who um, came from a behavioral lab. And unfortunately, when she was very young, um, her mother had an, uh, a panic incident and basically um, bit her arms. And so she has, instead of two full arms, basically uh, two nubs, one right below the elbow and one right above. And so she walks upright most of the time, but the enclosures and habitats at the Center for Great Apes are pretty high, and Mari can climb all the way to the top using her feet and her partial arms and her chin. I mean, it is, there's no way we'd be able to do this. There just isn't. And she's a tough cookie. Like she also is definitely one of the ones that you have got to gain her trust. And once you do, you're in. <laughs> but um, 
she lived at the time with two larger male orangutans, Christopher and Pongo, which is uh, really uncommon to have two male orangutans together, but they actually grew up together. And at the time they weren't large cheek patters. So they're separated now, but at the time they were younger. And, you know, if one of the boys was picking on her, she would just like karate kick them. And like, just just watching, like, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, like she would, that's she would get really mad, and she would, you'd know it, and she would spit at them, and she would kick them. And as small as she was, she was a firecracker, and still is a firecracker. And she's very, very smart, and so she really enjoys things like with her enrichment, like sorting. So she'll get puzzles or different things and sort them out and play with them in different ways. And oftentimes using her lips or her feet, right? One of the things that we worked with when we were down there was with on an iPad with her for enrichment. And so Arrange and Outreach donated all of these iPads to their Apps for Apes program. And we did it with her and she would use her lip a lot of the time. Um, or her feet because she couldn't use her hands because she didn't have any. And so like, just to, just to see that and everything that she could do, regardless of the challenges that she had faced, I mean, she, she really should not have survived. And yet here she is this spunky older lady now who just is phenomenal and a really huge inspiration to, I think, all the caregivers there and all the people who come in contact with her and hear her story. And that one has just always stuck with me. And I, I think I have a little bit of a soft spot because my my mother and my, my grandmother worked with um, children with disabilities and so both physical and mental disabilities. And so I've always had a soft spot for Mari as well. But you wouldn't know it. I mean, she does just some phenomenal wow, things. So, yeah. That's amazing. No, thank you so much. That is, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I've only seen one orangutan that lost an arm and, and, and it could climb, it, you know, it had three appendages yeah. to climb with it, but yeah, using its chin and stuff. So that would be really interesting yeah. to see. Um, how old's Mari now? Oh, I'm, I'm guessing here. I would, I'm guessing she's 37 or 38. But I could be totally wrong. The one great thing is the Center for Great Apes has a fantastic website that has all of their individual profiles and their ages. So definitely look her up there. This has been so much fun. I especially love that last story. That is so awesome. Take care. Thank you so much. Get your next shot and get through all this pandemic stuff. Thank you for having me. You too. Hopefully we'll see you in real life soon. Very soon. Yeah, indeed. All right. All bye-bye. Right. Take care. Once again, I'd like to thank Colleen Reed for sharing her love affair with the ever-clever orangutan. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash talkingapes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work pulling together another great podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. 
Please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation to Globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.